Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. In April of 2013, a podcast launched, and it was one of the first podcasts, it was actually one of the first mediums with content to talk exclusively about Bitcoin in a, in a somewhat professional way. And this was called Let's Talk Bitcoin. There was the host of that show who went on to become one of the most famous people in our industry. His name is Andreas Antonopoulos, and he joined me on Untold Stories today. What an amazing, amazing episode. Andreas has written so many books. His first one, Mastering Bitcoin, that was published by O'Reilly Media in 2014, is widely considered to be the best technical guide ever written about Bitcoin. And this textbook about Bitcoin is on the shelf of almost every Bitcoin developer I know. His second book, The Internet of Money, unveiled the why of Bitcoin. Same reason why I'm doing this show. We want to talk about why Bitcoin is important. That book became a bestseller on Amazon. Now, Andreas became this Sherpa for Bitcoin, but also for Ethereum and living in the multi blockchain world. We talked about a lot of subjects that people were asking back then, like can exchanges ever exist in the US? We talked about perspective about Bitcoins and milli Bitcoins, talked about a lot of different subjects relating to the space, inflation, Joe Rogan, um, and how Andreas really got into the space. Enjoy the episode, guys, and I'll see you right back after the ads. I'm so honored that Untold Stories is sponsored by eToro. eToro is the smartest crypto trading platform and one of the largest in the world with over a trillion dollars in trading volume per year. What I really love about eToro is that the CEO has been around the Bitcoin space since 2012, so they really, really put their money where their mouths are. US customers, myself included, we can trade the most popular crypto assets, in fact, almost all of the ones that you want to trade with low but transparent fees. So you actually know what you're paying for everything. And that's really, really, really important. So if you're not ready to trade yet, you can practice building your portfolio with the eToro $100,000 virtual trading feature. So you can create this whole portfolio without trading with any real money to see how you'll do and you can learn all the different ins and outs without using any real money yet. And then once you're comfortable, you can enter the market and start buying and selling crypto for real. Best of all, one of my favorite features is that you can connect with 11 million other eToro traders in the world, myself included. And we can talk trading, charts, and all things crypto. So listen, head on over to eToro.com, links are in the show notes, and build your crypto portfolio the smart way. I want to thank and give credit to the first ever sponsor of Untold Stories, Scott Offer. Scott is a Bitcoin mining consultant, and I really want you guys to check out one of his coolest apps that's free to use. It's a Bitcoin mining profitability calculator that you can check it out before you get involved in mining, or if you just want to learn more about whether mining is profitable and how it works. The website is CryptoMining.Tools. That's CryptoMining.Tools. You can enter your estimated uptime and get more realistic profit projections. It includes really cool features like the impact of the Bitcoin block reward having, which is actually coming up extremely soon. 
Their API allows you to embed profitability calculators and other live data directly into your own website, all for free. Also, if you're wondering which miner is the most efficient or has the best chance of breaking even, you should try out their interactive hardware comparison chart. So it's a hardware comparison chart. So you can compare all different types of miners for all different coins and tokens, and it's interactive. So you can play around with it. It's by far the best tool if you have any questions about mining or if you want to learn more about mining, it's the best tool you can check it out. As a mining consultant, Scott helps you make data-backed business decisions. He will be involved in the process if you want to buy a miner, if you want to sell a miner, if you have miners and need to get into data centers. I mean, if you follow Scott on Twitter, even if you're not in the mining industry, you learn so much. I follow him. It's super cool. You can check it out on Twitter or Telegram at Offered Scott. That's O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. That's O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. Again, I want to give a special thanks to Scott. You were my first sponsor when the show was just launching. Thank you so much. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. I'm really excited for today's episode. Actually, I probably say that after every episode, but this is this is a super special one and didn't require the large amount of research that I usually have to do, but we're very lucky to have Andreas Antonopoulos on the show today. Andreas, thank you so much for coming to the show. Hello, Charlie. Thank you so much for having me. Andreas, I want to I wanna go back. Um, usually I need to like introduce the guest and record an intro and stuff like that, and I'll, and I'll do that later, um, but I think I'm going to jump right into it because... Um, there's not much of an introduction to be made here. Uh, you've been, um, and I hate to use the term, you know, um, I hate to use any term like that's related to like army or military, but you've been like a soldier for Bitcoin for mm -hmm. almost a decade. I like to think of myself as a Sherpa. Sherpa! I do all of the, ca all of the carrying up to the mountain and then uh, everybody else takes the credit. <laughs> that's actually a really good, no, but it's a really, yeah, that's actually a good point there. No, but the Sherpa never gets the credit. Right. Well, I, I mean, uh, it, it, in all seriousness, I like to think of myself as the Walmart greeter of Bitcoin. Um, I, I, I I'm that. the non-threatening guy at the front door who goes, hello, folks, can I interest you in some crypto? We have a special on aisle four. <laughs> and you've, you've been doing it for so long and you've been doing it in a lot of different ways through a lot of different mediums with content. And you've been um, the message is very firm. And, and I we'll, we'll get to a little bit later where there were times where some people um, like on Twitter and things like that kind of came at you and, and, and uh, didn't like whatever opinion or message you were, you were putting out, uh, but it doesn't happen often, but let's forget that for a second. Let's go back to 2013 where it all started. Let's yep. talk about episode one of let's talk Bitcoin. So for those <laughs> who don't know, let's talk Bitcoin was probably 
uh, is probably the first podcast or the first real, you know, content yep. medium uh, for Bitcoin going back to 2013. Um, yeah, it's the longest running show. Uh, we are recording episode 420 um, this week, actually right after this. I want to be on that show and I want to be partaking in, in potentially something that I shouldn't be partaking in on the show. No, I'm just joking. But so that so so tell me tell me where the idea of that show came about and did you realize that that was going to be your first foray into Sherpa Antonopolis? Um no, I had no idea. So the the idea of the show came um in the beginning of 2013. I'm I I've done all my reading. I've decided I'm in uh, and I'm very excited about Bitcoin. And now I want to meet other people who are into it um, in person so that I can uh, share my excitement. So I, I find a, a Bitcoin meetup that's happening in Napa. California? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. I lived in San Francisco at the time, and there's a, there's a meetup happening in Napa, California. Was that your first meetup? It was my very first meetup. And I go there, and only one person shows up. Oh no. Yeah. And um I'm like, yeah, well, we're both here. We might as well sit down. It was a diner, I think, and we're like, we'll have steak and eggs. <laughs> so we sit down to have steak and eggs. And uh the person who showed up was Adam Levine, um, who had already started doing and um, was telling me very excitedly about his Wait, not not the Maroon Five Adam Levine. I just want to point that because people are probably listening yeah, yeah. like, what? Right. Adam B. Levine. I like Adam B. Levine better, actually, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. The uh, host of Let's Talk Bitcoin, the founder of Let's Talk Bitcoin. And at the time, he was doing Let's Talk Bitcoin as a daily show. Um, that's how excited he was. And it, it wasn't it wasn't working very well because uh, because he was completely exhausted from trying to do it as a daily show. And we met up at that meetup. Uh, and then we kept in touch, and I think it was less than a month later that he decided to switch it to a weekly and reached out to me and Stephanie Murphy to invite us to join him on the show. And I jumped at the opportunity, and we, we recorded the first episode, I believe it was in April um, of 2013. So who were the first hosts of Let's Talk Bitcoin? And, and tell me a little bit about them. Tell me a little about what was the vibes of that first kind of episode recording. Did you, you just met Adam. Did you know Dr. Murphy before? No, I didn't. I met Stephanie uh, on the show when we were both uh, hosts. And um, so uh, Dr. Stephanie Murphy, um, she's a PhD uh, in neuroscience, uh, I believe. Um, and she is uh, a long time uh, involved. She's been involved long time in the uh, libertarian movement, and uh, at the time was uh, had been exposed to Bitcoin and had learned about Bitcoin from going to events like Porkfest um, in in uh, New Hampshire. You know the libertarian. Um, Burning yeah, she Man was. Life. I think that's where I actually met her as well at. Um... The same place I met Jeffrey Tucker at uh, in Nashville, New Hampshire, at like one of the um, Early Free State ones, Project yeah. 2013 or something like that. Yeah, that's where that's where uh, uh, Mandrake was selling uh, yes. bacon weaves and baklava for Bitcoin. Yes. We've had him and, on the show too. Yeah, so it's a it, it, a lot of the very very early people involved uh, at the time were 
it came out of that community. I had no involvement with the libertarian community at the time. I, I came at it from the computer science side. Anyway, so we got on the show and uh, we started recording and it was just a free form chat and the format hasn't really changed. We, is there uh, is there an intro to Let's Talk Bitcoin like that was then that's different now? No, not really. How it do you was, guys start the show? Adam just started talking and say, uh, hi, I'm, this is Let's Talk Bitcoin. I'm Adam B. Levine and I'm joined on today's show with... Um, Andreas Antonopoulos and Dr. Stephanie Murphy. Okay, and so now, so let's go back because um, this is this could be a fun exercise. So, um, and that's what we do: we do untold stories and go back in time to let people know what were the conversations back then, what were we talking about, what were we feeling, and who were we in those years. So, I got the show notes here for Let's Talk Bitcoin. So here we go. Episode one. Yeah, episode one. Let's do it. So, wow. All right, everyone. My name is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Let's Talk Bitcoin. I'm not Adam Levine, and this is Untold Stories. Um, it's April 23rd, 2013. The price of Bitcoin, actually, what was the price of Bitcoin in April 2013? Probably extremely low. Price of Bitcoin is probably in the dollars right now. Um, it was. It was under. I believe it was just under a hundred dollars at the time. I could probably look it up. Um, yeah, because I remember that summer, it, it I was I was waiting f to celebrate a hundred dollar Bitcoin, and it shot straight past and went to two fifty, and I couldn't even believe it. Hey guys, this is Charlie Shrem from Let's Talk Bitcoin. The date is April twenty third, two thousand thirteen. Everyone, you need to hold on and just hold. The price just went from two hundred and sixty six down to around fifty dollars. And now it's sitting around $100 for one Bitcoin. Everyone, please, we're going to talk to Andreas Antonopoulos today. But don't, you know, like hold your Bitcoin. We're going to see Bitcoin over $200 again soon. I'm telling you, it's going to happen. So <laughs> well, now, we, that, sorry. We never really talked about price, though. That's the thing. I mean, um, we never really talked about price. And I, I think that's been one of the consistent things about the show and everybody involved in that is that we, we mentioned the price every now and then we, we giggled about all of the excitement that was going on and the craziness, but we never really focused too much on the price. Um, but you definitely like, if there was a major, you know, if the price was really just going down, you must have known that as you're recording, you're going to be having to like hold people's hands and sherpa them across the difficult parts. You know what I mean? Not really. I really? mean, at that, at that time, I think um, none of us really, none of us really had any degree of uh, strong faith that, um, that this experiment was going to succeed. What we were interested in is, why Bitcoin is a political experiment and a technology experiment that interests us. And, you know, the financial aspect of the time was relatively subdued. Um, none of us really expected it to, to do crazy things. So, it wasn't until November of 2013 um, when it did a massive run up to about 1200 that the attitude in the entire space changed. But, you know, I think for all of us, it was the excitement of the technology and the politics. We talked a lot about politics and technology. You did talk a lot about politics and technology. So let's let's kind of jump right into it. So these were the show notes. And the, this is what 
was being talked about. These were topics in in April of 2013. So, what is FinCEN, and why is it the biggest threat to Bitcoin? <laughs> yeah, Do you remember, remember when FinCEN that. that so that so FinCEN that was when FinCEN came out with our guidance. I think it was like literally yeah. around that time because we shut down BitInstant in June of 2013 because of that FinCEN yeah. guidance. So what was that guidance and who is FinCEN? So FinCEN is the financial crime enforcement uh, network, I think. And yeah, it's a right, regular... Yeah. Of the yeah, IRS. It's a, yeah, it's a regulatory agency that I believe is part of uh, Treasury. And what they do is they deal with money laundering regulations. So they issued some guidance about um, the requirements for money transmitter licenses for people to, who do exchanges or um, something like that. I can't even remember what the exact guidance was. It was the first of many regulations to follow. And, and that's I, why what so I do important. remember, what I do remember is that um, everyone in the Bitcoin space was freaked out because what they thought, so this was the first time when people started saying, oh no, the US government is going to kill Bitcoin. They're going to ban Bitcoin. What if they ban Bitcoin, et cetera. And you know, that's when we started talking about those topics um, and started talking about the fact that in, in practical terms, they can't. Do you think we were more afraid of the government banning Bitcoin, whatever that even means, then, as we are now? I No, we weren't. Uh, at least the, the people who are on the show, a lot of the, the people who are around, no, we weren't. Uh, primarily from my perspective, looking at this, um, with my experience coming from the uh, internet technology and computer science side of it, I had a good understanding of these battles because we had already fought them on the internet with the music industry over file sharing and peer-to-peer -peer networks and um, over the web and over the clipper chip and various encryption technologies. And in every single case, um, the government had tried to regulate technology out of existence and failed miserably well, you, um, and, you, and only strengthened that technology. You guys had talked about that because one of the, the next topic was that an exchange in the United States, Bitfloor, was forced to shut down. You remember Bitfloor was one of the earlier exchanges. Um, right. And then the, you guys talked about, can exchanges even exist in the U.S.? Um, why was that such an important topic? Because right now that seems ex extremely of an obsolete question. Well, at the time, um, really, we were still in, the, in, in an environment where empty Gox was the only real serious viable option in terms of liquidity and empty gox had already had a number of problems we all knew that it was a very poorly designed system every time the trading volume went top the latency would shoot through the roof and people's trades wouldn't go through that's an understatement um, yeah it kept it kept crashing so we had essentially only one major exchange that was providing the vast majority of the liquidity and, you know, one of the big concerns at the time was, look, if the regulators keep pushing the way they're doing, all they're doing is they're pushing users to use exchanges located outside the U.S., which exposes them to greater risk um, than if they used one here. So we were hoping that eventually the environment would change and we'd be able to see exchanges in the U.S. But at that point, it didn't seem likely. Well, it seems like um, they were... 
it seems like what has happened and tell me if I'm wrong. Um, I know you're very active and you talk to a lot of people and in a lot of different jurisdictions around the world and, and especially in the U.S. and California, Wyoming and New York. And you probably speak to a lot of the companies. But what what was the worry then is a little bit different now. So then the question was, can exchanges exist in the U.S.? But, ne- but And then we thought that and what was spoken about is that the U- United States would become like uh, a, a no go, a, a backwater for crypto, and then it would yeah. be you know oh, for Bitcoin. I don't like to use that term. I don't like to use the term crypto when you're defining things back then because that term didn't really exist. Then, until... yeah, it was only Bitcoin. Yeah. So 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 for Bitcoin. So I mean, um, but then and so my I guess my first I'm going to ask like you a three a two or three part question. So the um, one. We were talking about Bitcoin, you know, eventually becoming uh, all over the world and the U.S. becoming a backwater. Um, that's still being talked about now, but it hasn't happened yet. So, one, do you think that that will happen? But I guess I'm going to invalidate my first question with my second question and say that I think what has happened over the past, you know, at least three, four years is that instead of the the, the message and what's happening is, Will the United States become a backwater? It seems like it's becoming more state by state. And the government is kind of taking a step back a little bit and and kind of letting, like similar to like how cannabis is regulated in the US. And it's like, let each state figure out what they want to do. And so some states are like super like, come here, we want you. And some other states are like, fuck off, we don't want you at all. <coughs> Pardon <coughs> Yeah, to to a certain extent, but you know, I think we we had already talked about it. Then the the big difficulty that the United States has, uh, which in in many industries is an advantage, and in other industries is a big disadvantage, is the fragmented legal um, uh, jurisdictional kind of landscape. Uh, the the rules that that apply to securities, taxes, currency, money transmitters, and banking are patchwork of state and federal jurisdictions with half a dozen federal agencies vying for position as to who's going to regulate it. From time to time, we've seen FinCEN, uh, the IRS, Treasury, uh, CFTC, SEC, uh, and uh, and several other agencies um, give their own kind of take on what's happening in the space. And then you have all of the state agencies dealing with all of the exchanges, um, making it very, very expensive for exchanges to operate in the US, but also creating a lot of uncertainty. I think in the end, the, the, the US ensured that they would kill retail use of Bitcoin in the United States. Uh, and they killed that very, very effectively with the IRS ruling that uh, required capital gains reporting for every transaction with no minimum amount exception. So with every other currency, if you do a transaction under $600, um, then it's not subject to capital gains. It's considered just a, a cash transaction. But that doesn't apply to Bitcoin. So if you buy a cup of coffee, you have to do capital gains reporting, which makes it impossible for people to do retail uh, transaction in the U.S. the the accounting costs becomes insurmountable. So the IRS effectively killed retail use in the U.S. Oh, and when and that happened, when that happened, you say to yourself, "Why does it matter? Who cares what they say?" The problem is for the listeners is that when they did that, 
all the companies that operate in the space at the time and even now, but especially at the time in the Bitcoin space, now these companies have to shift, almost shift their business models because they're not focusing on, you know, re- people buying cups of coffee in retail. Right. Um, Absolutely. And that's and, and over time, that's what happens. So it's like you can't it's like if you put a frog if someone had this great analogy the other day on the show is that if you put a frog in boiling water, it's going to jump out or it's going to die. But if you put a frog in warm water and slowly turn up the heat, it's not going to jump out. Um, because it doesn't know better, it thinks that's the norm, and then eventually the water will become too hot and it'll die. And what? So what you described is the perfect example of that slow attack on Bitcoin. Right. Yeah, and I, I think that's uh, and and it's getting worse, right? So recently, a couple months ago, um, the IRS issued new guidance where now you're responsible for paying income taxes on every fork that happens, whether you know it or not, whether you uh, sell it or not, whether you uh, are um, able to find a market to sell it, and you pay income taxes on the price of that asset, even if it's only listed on a, on a very small market with very little liquidity and the price is meaningless. So it's, it's a ridiculous ruling, which uh, either stems from a fundamental misunderstanding of how these things work, which is very likely, of course, they do not understand how these things work. But also, um, it has a, a fantastic chilling effect on, on um, holding and keeping keys under your control. So it pushes people to do um, custodial services. But economically, uh, socioeconomically, is it better to have our system here that we have today? um, Is it better for it to be a, you know, holding or like a digital gold or whatever, or is it better for it to be spendable? Well, I mean, that depends on you know where you are and what you're trying to do i think it's both i I think it's i I think it's i think it's both but i think that again depends on the context like uh in in some countries where you have severe inflation concerns um then one use of the currency is more important than the other but i there's no universal value here um it's not a matter of this currency is a store of value. It's a store of value for some people in some places, and it's a medium of exchange for other people in other places. That's a very good point. So, so you know, um, would you agree with me if I said that because you know that psychologically, anywhere in the world, pretty much at any time you want, you can sell your Bitcoin for any local currency? Now, you may not be actually doing it, but the mere fact knowing that you can allows it allows you to know that hey i'm going to hold on and i'm going to save this thing uh, to a certain extent but then again um i use bitcoin and and not just bitcoin now but i use bitcoin as a medium of exchange a lot because i i run uh, a business and i have uh now 11 members of staff uh some full time some congratulations yeah, thank you. Um, we, we've gradually built it up so we can extend the reach of the educational material that I produce. And um, a big chunk of my employees get paid in a mixture of fiat and crypto. And I get paid for the work I do in a mixture of fiat and crypto. So I have crypto cash flow. It co- comes in every month. It goes out every month. Um, and it's, I, I manage crypto accounts just like I manage my fiat bank accounts. And to me, it's very much a medium of exchange. In fact, in, in many cases, it's the 
it's the only effective way I can pay people um, who uh, are in other countries without um, massive delays, risks, and uh, fees. So, you know, for me, it is a medium of exchange and a store of value. I'm so honored that Untold Stories is sponsored by eToro. eToro is the smartest crypto trading platform and one of the largest in the world with over a trillion dollars in trading volume per year. What I really love about eToro is that the CEO has been around the Bitcoin space since 2012, so they really, really put their money where their mouths are. U.S. customers, myself included, we can trade the most popular crypto assets, in fact, almost all the ones that you want to trade, with low but transparent fees. So you actually know what you're paying for everything. And that's really, really, really important. So if you're not ready to trade yet, you can practice building your portfolio with the eToro $100,000 virtual trading feature. So you can create this whole portfolio without trading with any real money to see how you'll do. And you could learn all the different ins and outs without using any real money yet. And then once you're comfortable, you can enter the market and start buying and selling crypto for real. Best of all, one of my favorite features is that you can connect with 11 million other eToro traders in the world, myself included. And we can talk trading, charts, and all things crypto. So listen, head on over to eToro.com Links are in the show notes and build your crypto portfolio the smart way. I'd like to thank my sponsor of Untold Stories, Scott Offord. Scott is a Bitcoin mining consultant and provides managed miner hosting services in Texas. If you need to get at least 25 megawatts of miners online in the next three months, Scott wants to talk with you right now. Contact him on Telegram or Twitter at OFFORD. S-C-O-T-T. He's offering an all-in rate of 6.5 cents per kilowatt an hour. Wow, that's like super cheap. That's like electricity cost in the Arctic where things are automatically cooled because it's so cold. So he's offering 6.5 cents per kilowatt an hour without any CapEx required. Or if you commit to $170,000 per megawatt up front, he can get you a rate of five cents per kilowatt. Am I reading that right? Five cents per kilowatt? That's unbelievable. Scott can get your first 25 megawatt hashing within 16 weeks from the date of signing. All the infrastructure, power lines, substations, water lines, and buildings are fully owned by the hosting company. By the end of March 2020, they will already have 150 megawatts online in Texas. This is such a super cool ad to record because my listeners are learning about mining now. Like this is this is really interesting. I, I didn't even know half this half this stuff before I met Scott and he started sponsoring the show. So make sure you check out Scott on Telegram and Twitter at O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O. TT. And Scott, thank you again for being my first ever Untold Story sponsor. So still like you, um, I, I completely agree. And it actually, there's, there's a nice feeling that I get when I send Bitcoin, and I'll tell you why. Like you, I run, I run a, you know, a business, a few businesses, and I get paid in Bitcoin and fiat, but I also pay out frequently in Bitcoin. So I'm also using it as a medium of exchange. And one of the reasons I do it, and one of the reasons I, I love it, is there's no better feeling, and the listeners will know what I'm talking about. If you're someone who has to send wires or, or mail checks frequently, um, you know, there's no better feeling, and there's, there's nothing better than when you send a Bitcoin transaction, 
let it be for $1,000 or even for $100 or for $100,000. As soon as you click that send button, you have a transaction link of the actual transaction in real time on the blockchain that you can copy and paste and send to the person that you're sending the money. Here you go, proof in real time. And it's like a super cool thing because it's not happening like... Uh, you know, when, when you send wires, you're, like every bank is a little bit different. You're always like wondering. Yeah, like, it's three to five days. They and... have a whole office. Like literally my bank yeah. has a whole office here an hour away. Really nice people, by the way. I, I talk to them very frequently. But there's like 15 people working in this office and their job is to just manage the wire transfer department. Why is that needed? Yeah. It, it's not. Uh, well, it's needed because of the uh, fourth property of money that I've discussed in my talks. You know, money has the three properties we know of, which are store value, medium of exchange, and unit of account. And then it has a, a fourth property that was uh, introduced in the 1970s, which is system of control. And it's the system of control aspect of money, uh, a, a system of surveillance and control of populations. That is the aspect that, uh, that overrides all of the others. Um, and that's why there's 15 people in that department. They're not there to enable the medium of exchange function of the money. Um, they're there to enable the system of control function of money. They're not there to allow wire transfers. They're there to stop wire transfers. Compliance, basically. Right. Compliance yes, of exactly. a system, not just compliance for them, but compliance of a system. So the yeah. system should work. The, the What we've learned from Bitcoin is that you can have a financial system that works like a well-oiled machine perfectly just seamless with like butter but then you have the legacy financial system that at its start is is living with a crutch because all at its start we're looking at bitcoin that is completely fluid and then you have this other financial system that is just not and then every no, every person yeah it's fragmented every person every company everything, every database, everything that operates within that system, the legacy system, is there to slow it down and make it more expensive and more difficult yeah. to use. Yeah. So, you know, from, from my perspective, when, you know, one of the interesting things is people often ask me, well, why would you use Bitcoin as a medium of exchange uh, if it's volatile? Aren't you worried that you're going to you know, lose money if the price goes down or gain money if the price goes up, wouldn't you rather just halt? And, you know, that's the, that's the other thing that we may have a, as a common experience here is that when you use it as a medium of exchange frequently enough, all of that averages out. So if, if you only use it outgoing, right, you're only paying for things in Bitcoin, then obviously the volatility is going to drive you crazy. Um, but if you also earn it and you pay out and you do it frequently enough that this is something that happens every month, every week, um, then all of that volatility just averages out, right? I never thought so, about that. So yes, the price goes down and, uh, and as a result, when I pay for something, I'm spending more Bitcoin, but I just sent out an invoice and because the price went down, I get paid more. So when the price goes down, I earn more Bitcoin for each uh, for each dollar I've invoiced. Um, and I pay more Bitcoin for each dollar I owe. And when it goes up, the other way around. But it doesn't matter because as long as there's flow. So so that's a that's a really important thing to to realize, which is 
volatility doesn't matter if you spend a lot of the time in the economy um, of uh, Bitcoin and you're both earning and spending at the same time. All these factors you say really matter because um, economics and you know is 50% math, 50% psychology, you know how we think about mm -hmm. money, how we act. When you pull a little lever and in, in, you know lower interest rates by you know point quarter of a percent, you may think it's trivial, but it has such an impact on on markets and then also psychologically how we act and react towards money. Um, it, it's funny that you actually bring that up because going back to the show notes for that first episode in April 2013, one of the questions you asked was, um, it's all about perspective when we break down switching from bitcoins to milli bitcoins. Now, why were you talking right. about, you know, like moving the decimal point or, 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 or calling it milli bitcoins or satoshis like we do now? Sats, you know, sats is growing and sats is a big thing because that's big, but, but bitcoins at $8,000. Back then it was at $50. So why were you talking about milli bitcoins back then? Because for a lot of the small value retail transactions we were doing in terms of, say, a cup of coffee, we were still talking about spending 0.15 Bitcoin or something like that for a cup of coffee. And uh, in fact, if you look at the examples I have in Mastering Bitcoin, which was written during that time, the actual examples with real transactions that I did for a cup of coffee were 0.15 Bitcoin. Um, you know, so uh, from a human perception, perspective, it is very difficult to deal with fractions and uh, well, basically floating point numbers because um, humans aren't equipped to deal with that. The, the hardest arithmetic to do in your head, especially if you're, if you're not decimals and fractions is, is division. Yeah. And decimals and fractions. So does that, does that have anything to do with the fact that why we like whole numbers? Like why do we care about absolutely. a Bitcoin price at 10,000 or 5,000 or 20? What, what is the because whole number matter? Because we have ten fingers, we don't have a tenth of a finger, um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's and it's difficult to subdivide unless you start using knuckles. Um, but you know, oh, I the, never thought about using knuckles before. You have three oh, knuckles: yeah. one, two, a well, lot two of, knuckles. A lot of a lot of cultures use knuckles when they count on their fingers. How many knuckles do I have technically? Is that is that considered a knuckle? The thing under my nail, or is it just the middle one? Um, I think you, we need to listen to the knuckle podcast. Okay, two yeah. per finger. Um, so the 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 thing about um, uh, fractions is it's very difficult for people to um, compare fractions. It's very difficult for people to reason in fraction fractions, um, and it's often confusing. So we were talking already at that point as to how you should be saying 150 millibits for a cup of coffee. Uh, instead of uh, 0.15 Bitcoin. And, and it makes a lot of sense. Um, if you've lived in, in a country where they have a currency where they have lots of zeros, I remember when I used to travel to Italy in the 80s with my family, you know, and, and, and a cup of coffee was 5,000 lira or 1,500 lira. Um, and that was perfectly understandable and comfortable right? Um, to, to reason in the, it got difficult if you wanted to buy a house, of course, because then you're looking at, you know, billion uh, lira for a house, but um, for day-to-day -day purchases, very, very reasonable. Wait a minute. And, wait a minute. Sorry to interrupt you. So right now, like we have very little zeros in our money. I have a dollar, $10. No one uses like $1 anymore. 
People don't really yes. use five dollars. It's like ten, twenties, hundreds. Um, yes, we're but, heading in that direction. We're heading to the lira. Well, wow. we're we're going that way because of pro- inflation, and I want to ask you right. about that. But but are you saying that for a retail environment or for for person to person in places like uh, uh, Nigeria, Argentina, or uh, um, anywhere where there's like ramp, well, anywhere where they have a lot of zeros, but inflation kind of tapered off, it's a better retail environment when you have a lot of. I never thought about that. Not a lot of zeros, but but certainly a few more. Not- for, yeah, a few more, not, like, not fractions. So, um, like it, cents, it, I hate cents and coins. Yeah. There, there's no reason for them. Exactly. Um, but imagine if those actually were worth buying something, and you had to deal with all of that change and counting fractions and trying to multiply it up to a dollar, et cetera. And that's where we are with Bitcoin. So, so moving to millibits was a perceptual trick. The other big important reason why we were talking about it at the time was the the fundamental misunderstanding that continues today is I can only uh, buy a whole Bitcoin, right? Which even then was was expensive uh, for people, right? So we wanted people to understand that they could buy and spend fractions of a Bitcoin. Um, you know, I, I, I even have a t-shirt, uh, with that meme on it because it's such a common misunderstanding that people need to really, it still uh, is by the way. Yeah. So the, you can buy a fraction of a Bitcoin, um, is, is one of the t-shirts I sell because it's, it's, it's one of the memes I'm trying to help people understand. When I see- uh, it's, it's very important, um, to make these perceptual shifts because otherwise it looks expensive. Now, if you're involved in finance and investment, then then you know you look a, a share of Berkshire Hathaway, I don't know how much it is right now, $150,000 or whatever it is. Um, but but most most things you can't um, buy uh, a fraction of a share unless you're buying it from someone who already owns. So the way yes. these like Robin Hoods and whatever allow you to buy fractions of shares of companies is because they themselves are buying that share and then issuing you a fraction of their own share. Right, right, exactly. So, um, but so that perceptual mistake is is common, especially in in Bitcoin. But there are a lot and, of mistakes. The fact, in... the fact of the matter is that Bitcoin doesn't exist. Bitcoins don't exist in Bitcoin. There are only Sats. Satoshi's is the only unit that actually exists. If you look at the code, if you look at the network, if you look at the transactions, if you break down the numbers inside the transactions, there is never. A Bitcoin unit. Why don't you? Why don't you go artificial. further, though? Go, I mean, go further in that, and 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 really tell tell us that that even that is you're like kind of watering it down a little bit. Really, like Bitcoins don't really exist, isn't it? At it's all. all it's all unspent uh, transaction inputs. Outputs, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's literally inputs, millions of inputs and outputs, and eventually, if you have enough of unspent uh, inputs coming in, you can. You know that there's value to that because there's uh because however many sats that is or whatever it is. Uh, but I mean, you don't actually own. And I'm surprised we've never made this case before. We've never gone to the government and say, you know, like you don't actually own Bitcoin. You don't own any Bitcoin that doesn't exist. Um, but I wanted well, to ask. I mean, it, it doesn't really matter for, as a legal argument because um, I wish it. I wish it was. But I wanted to ask you. Hair. I wanted to ask you about inflation. Um, because you talk about. So you talk about things that we don't understand, and you're right. And and 
financial literacy is one of those things that up until, you know, Bitcoin even existed, most people never really talked about. And just like the printing press, no one ever needed to know how to read and write until the printing press was existed because the books back then were only, you know, Bibles. Until Bitcoin came out and, and 2008 came along when we had, you know, what they call the Great Recession, people didn't really care about financial literacy. So, let, But still, even till today, inflation... American people didn't care about financial literacy. That's a good point. Amer- I, I, I apologize. In, I grew up... No, no, I'm just saying it's, it's a matter of perspective because in Greece, growing up through recessions and inflation, or if you talk to an Argentinian, um, they learned very early on. You you spend pesos, you save dollars. Um, they learned the fundamentals of inflation. Uh, you learn not to trust banks. You learn what a devaluation is. Uh, I remember all of those things when I was a kid, um, learning those the hard way, of course. Uh, and until 2008, you know, the last time there was something like that that happened in the U.S. was, um, you know, 1929. So most of the people who remember those lessons were very, very old and nobody listened to them. I just got a I just got a voicemail from a, from a random number saying that there's fraudulent activity and I need to call them back because the matter is going to go to state court and then they're going to take my house and I'm going to get arrested. Yes, there. Well, there is fraudulent activity, and it's that text message. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so inflation. Can you so can you explain it to us as if we don't understand? And I'll tell you why I'm asking you a very basic question. Um, there was a poll that I just read the other day, and they asked Americans what is inflation, and they asked some other questions. And the 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 poll came out, and it's like I forget the exact. It's like eighty percent of Americans can't properly, it's even more higher than that, can't properly explain inflation. And what scared me the most was that they think, most Americans think that inflation is a product of the government and it's something that just is and it exists and the government should control it. And um, and the fact that things cost more next year and the year after and the year after that is a product of the world we live in and it's we have to live with it. Um, well, yeah, I mean, uh, Keynesian economics has become absolutely dominant. Um, and it, what's even more shocking is that many of the um, regulators and economists believe the same thing. Now, I'm not an economist, so I'm not going to go and argue against that. But the, the, there's a difference between um, purchasing power, per se, and, and monetary inflation. And I think that's another big thing that, that people don't understand. Um, purchasing power, uh, loss of purchasing power is a result of monetary inflation, not the other way around. And when people can't afford to buy the same things with the same amount of money, but it takes more money to buy them, that's a reduction in purchasing power, right? Um, and people are familiar with that. They understand that things getting more expensive means you can't buy the things you could before. Um, what's interesting is people don't often relate that to the fact that that doesn't happen to all goods. So if you ask people to define the opposite, which is what is deflation, um, they get even more confused. But if you said, hey, you know how... Um, uh, buying uh, a camera or buying a basic phone or something like that got cheaper every year, or how buying a, a, a color printer gets cheaper every year instead of more expensive. Technology, um, yeah. Right, right. So, so technology is a fundamentally deflationary uh, industry, and it's deflationary 
precisely because of the advancements of Moore's law. Um, but you know, and again, if if you talk to mainstream economists, deflation is bad. Uh, but if you relate it to purchasing power for consumers, it's great, right? Um, but you know, there's there's a lot of things that have to do with financial literacy, and I find the biggest challenge I have trying to explain Bitcoin almost always goes back to the fact that people have no idea how money works in the first place. It's a magical, mythical thing. Um, and in order to explain, but Bitcoin, that's on I purpose. Have, I, well, I often have to take two steps back and start explaining money. It, partly it's on purpose. Partly it's the luxury of living in a country where for the most part, for a very long time, uh, money has worked. So if you, you know, and a lot of American libertarians complain about, uh, federal reserve notes and the U S dollar being inflated, et cetera. But to, to, to be honest, the, the level of inflation the United States has experienced over the last um, 50 years uh, since the introduction of the U.S. dollar in, in 1971 um, is, is, is not uh, very bad compared to the rest of the world. The average currency only has a lifespan of about 27 years before it collapses. But that doesn't mean we should accept it as, as a norm. No, but if you if if it's so slow that you don't notice it, um, then people can exist in the fake comfort of ignorance and not need to know about these things. You know, there's no question about whether a Greek or an Argentinian, a Venezuelan or a Cuban needs to know about inflation. Of course, they need to know about inflation because it happens at such a rapid pace you can't ignore it. Um, whereas, whereas inflation in the U.S. dollar and 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 a few, a handful of other currencies has been so slow that most people can just go on with their lives in the comfort of of ignorance. Um, for for most Americans, the biggest difference in difference in purchasing power it, it is not the gradual inflation, but it's it's class movement, it's economic status, right? So if you can move up the economic classes and go from being lower middle class to upper middle class, you can change your purchasing power much more dramatically um, than the very slow inflation that you don't even notice. That's a good so point. It shifts, it shifts the attention completely. That's an interesting point. And I think that um, not, I like when things are not manipulated. Well, not that not that my opinion matters like that, but you know what I mean? Like yeah. um, when when things are not manipulated, there's more it's more fair across the board. Sure, absolutely. But, uh, you know, again, uh, it's, it's one of those weird uh, that's one of those weird artifacts of of freedom and relative stability is that you can be unconcerned about politics. You can be unconcerned about economic issues. And that's you the luxury just, we have. Yeah, you're right. Yes, exactly. It's the luxury privilege. Of course, it's a very dangerous uh, privilege and luxury because if you do it long enough, eventually things go so badly that that you do notice, right? If you, if you distract yourself and, and pull yourself out of uh, politics. I mean, when I when I um, first came to this country, um, you know, I, I was I had friends and family explain to me very patiently that in American culture we don't we don't discuss religion and politics. Um, you know, at the dinner table with friends at work, I'm like, um, so what do you discuss? 
like sports. Oh, well, I can see why you have uh, problems with religion and politics then. But I have a question because, for you about that. Because you don't that. discuss them. Like when I grew up in Greece, that we we always discussed those things at the dinner table with our parents, with our friends, and they had you know very very loud arguments that were completely friendly in nature. Um, and and the point of that was to constantly challenge each other intellectually and learn and and evolve thinking. Um, and when you stop doing that, you know, you you stop getting involved in in the governance of your country, and that's not a good thing. I wanted to ask you though, um, don't you think that you know, like use Greece for example, don't you think that Greek politics moves slower and more? Uh, inefficiently than american politics politics do, oh my or? god no really no. okay oh greek greek politics like italian politics like many other countries where you have a lot more of that discussion is is a bubbling cauldron of activity and intrigue and back and forth and coalition the media doesn't portray it that way what media well i feel um, like i feel like um you know if i read the economist or whatever or any you know uh something uh -huh. that's as central as, as can be. Um, they make it seem like European politics, you know, yes, there's it's a cauldron and there's so much activity, but like you don't need to do three elections in the course of six months, and um, the, which they're constantly doing, and coalitions are breaking and governments are never formed. And you go you know, half a year without you know a country even having a, an administration, or at least in American politics, well, before Trump at least, it was somewhat like stable and um, middle of the road. But I feel like we do as Americans do discuss politics. I don't know. I grew up in a very – in a but, oh, maybe, I, but just like you, I'm an immigrant. Uh, my yeah. family came from a place where you discuss politics too. Mm. I think that's the primary reason, and uh, of course, you know, and I, I don't think the politics in the United States is stable. It's just that um, there's a lot of apathy among the electorate because people assume, rightly so, that the system is rigged in such a way that you can't make change, that you can't change anything, that you vote for red Goldman Sachs, and you get a pro-war, pro-bank, pro-corporation um, conservative government. You vote for blue Goldman Sachs, you get a pro-war, pro-bank, pro-corporation conservative government. So what's the difference? There is no difference. Effectively, you get th there is no anti-war, anti-monopoly, um, uh, anti anti-cartel, anti-corporation, anti-big business um, a political party in the US. And and so that's the big difference. You have the Overton window in, in American political speech is so narrow. Um, I never the, heard yeah, that term the, before, the Overton window. I'm Googling it. Yeah, the Overton window is a political philosophy um, about what the acceptable range of debate is. What oh, is considered interesting. Mainstream. And, and, and it's so narrow in the U.S. that, um, you know, you, you can say all kinds of things. But if, if you challenge any 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 aspect of uh, I like to call it PC culture uh, and PC stands for patriotically correct. So you can say whatever you want as long as you support the troops uh, and support war and intervention everywhere in the world and um, believe in spreading democracy with bombs. Um, then you can say whatever you want. But if, if you challenge those things, if you say, oh, we should dismantle 
the Department of Homeland Security. We should dismantle the Department of, of Defense and shrink its budget by 90%. Then you're crazy. You're outside of the political norm. There's no question about it. And that's stable politics in, in the U.S. But hey, you know, uh, perhaps we've gone on a tangent and want to get back to Bitcoin. <laughs> True story. In 2014, you you authored the groundbreaking book Mastering Bitcoin by O'Reilly Media. Um, not only was it widely considered to be, you know, and still is the best technical guide for Bitcoin, but it was also it was also one of the first books published by a real uh, publisher that talked about Bitcoin. Um, and so I want to ask you about that book, but then you, you wrote a second book called The Internet of Money, and you wrote about the same reason why I'm doing this show is the why of Bitcoin. Why is it yeah. so important? And became a bestseller on Amazon. Um, and, and, and in these, in, these in those days, it was, the conversation was like 95% Bitcoin. There was like pure coin, name coin, and some other stuff, but it was 95% Bitcoin. And then over yeah. the years, um, Ethereum launched, and then there were some others. Um, you wrote a book, uh, Mastering Ethereum, and mm-hmm. there were some crypto Twitter personalities that didn't like that you were starting to embrace this multi-blockchain universe. Uh, what mm-hmm. do you have to say to that? I, I mean, I think people misunderstand um, the purpose of exploring technology and reasoning and thinking and learning about technology. Um, and they assume that this is about an investment proposition. Uh, and a lot of that, a lot of the criticism I got was from um, people who are in the investment trading and are into Bitcoin for monetary reasons who are not involved in technology and software development. And that's not my background. Um, I'm a computer scientist. I do software and open source software specifically. And so for me, learning about the technology is not a matter of doctrine or, um, or which is a correct investment and which one is an incorrect investment. I didn't write Mastering Ethereum to tell people to invest in Ethereum. In fact, the book isn't just about Ethereum. It's about any virtual machine programmable smart contract blockchain, which now applies to probably 20 different uh, chains. And, and I wrote it because I wanted to learn more and I was interested in the topic. So I'm, I'm never going to curtail my curiosity to satisfy somebody's purity test. I, I got a lot of pushback from that because people thought I was, the, I was criticized for promoting a scam, which, of course, I never promoted anything. But I, that's you talk about Overton Window. That's on one extreme side of. Yeah. of and mo- most people love the book. Um, but I guess, yeah, I had that conversation often, which people said, "Well, why would you write well, a, you know, a, a book on Ethereum?" And I and I would ask them, "Well, have you read it?" You know, Andreas, I guess. Say, well, I don't want to read it because it's a scam. I'm like, it's a book that's available for free. It's under an open source license. Yeah. You can read it at no cost. You're telling me that you're criticizing me for writing a book that you have not read. If you want to know why I wrote the book, read the damn thing. And then maybe you'll understand why I'm interested in this technology, or maybe not. Um, but 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 don't criticize a book you haven't read. I think that's it, that's intellectual cowardice. It's it's being afraid to expose yourself to an idea because you've decided you disagree with it without knowing anything about it. And that's that's definition of ignorism. 
uh, no, no, right. Yeah, it's it's willful ignorance. Um, and and I don't do that. And I'm I really don't care. Now now I'm writing my sixth book, which is uh, Mastering the Lightning Network, and I'm getting flack from a different group of Twitter people. Who what about are Mastering Ripple? <laughs> I'm just yeah, maybe, maybe that will be my yeah, then that will be my twentieth book. Well, listen, if uh, there's it, it, it's very basic. If if there's a developer community out there large enough where it warrants a a technical guide, then yeah, you're gonna write and a book about it. it. Yes, because I believe in in using you these need to eat. College- College level textbook. No, it's uh, honestly, it's not because, uh, you know, people think you make money from books, don't know anything about publishing. Um, I, I actually ended up losing money on mastering Ethereum. Um, I didn't do it to make money uh, because I lost money on it. I lost money because it, it takes a lot of work to write a book like that. And you end up making barely minimum wage for doing it. Um, and and in the end, I also got so much flack and pushback that, that I did lose a small part of of my audience from the Bitcoin space who objected so strenuously to that, that they wouldn't um, invite me to conferences and things uh, like that as a result. But but what I got from it was knowledge. And that's what my entire career has been about, and especially in the Bitcoin space. It has been about pursuing knowledge. So I write these books because I think they're one of the best ways to educate tens of thousands and then hundreds of thousands and then eventually millions of developers. It's about scale and leverage. Um, I can't teach every single person individually, but if I write a a book like um, Mastering Bitcoin, which, by the way, has now sold close to 30,000 copies, Wow. Um, Congratulations. And, Thank you. And it's been downloaded another 100,000 times. Uh, it's now being published in 17 different languages uh, around the world. That trains hundreds of thousands of developers. And pretty much any company you go into that's in our space that has developers, uh, they have that on their shelf because that's how they train all of their new uh, developers. And the same thing happens with Mastering Ethereum. And I hope the same thing will happen with Mastering Lightning Network. I can't wait um, for the Lightning Network. I'm very excited about it. We talked about it yesterday on, on the show. Yeah, and, and it gives me an opportunity to learn, but it also gives me leverage because if I can teach more people about this technology and if they learn about Ethereum through Mastering Ethereum and then decide that they don't like the monetary policy or how it was mined initially or how the community culture works and they want to work on Bitcoin, well, guess what? Everything they learn there is still very useful. Um, I'm not forcing anyone to pick sides. So I, I take this criticism and I give it exactly the amount of respect and attention it deserves, which is zero. I thought you were going to say like a little bit. On the on this show, yeah. we have we have all different people from all different spectrums and, and, and beliefs. And so we've had um, Samson Mao who very politely and probably gave me the, one of the best uh, arguments for maximalism. It was a great, a great show. And then you had someone like Eric Voorhees who just like you, um, you know, brilliant entrepreneur, but then started embracing this, this multi-blockchain world, just like myself, by the way, um, I, I have as well um, also got flack uh, for for doing that, so we have all different types of people. But at the end of the day, you're right. You know, you can have your own belief, 
but but don't force your belief on other people. And it's you know I hate to to throw names out, you know, but there there is a there is an entrepreneur in our space who would you know for for many 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 years t- tells people. Uh, that he was a voluntarist and in voluntarism, if you Google it, it's one of the, the ten- tenets of it is don't force your will on other people, but now is doing exactly that with his, with his own thing. And I don't want to throw out names, but that's, it's so interesting that that happened. Um, but I don't want to dwell yeah. on that. Sorry. I don't want to dwell on the, yeah. that, that too much. Um, I wanted to, I wanted to ask, I had a question from earlier that was more, more of my personal curiosity. Um, I've only ever I've only ever known you to to be an entrepreneur, um, but you did briefly take up a full time job. You were the chief security officer at Blockchain.info. Um, yeah, that was a part time job, but yes, I did. So I guess my question is to you: Do you consider yourself psychologically unemployable? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> and the only reason I took out that job at the time was because. Um, it was very difficult to continue. You know, I started in this space when I when I started in this space, I decided I would go full time into Bitcoin in 2013. So uh, even actually early 2012, I dropped all of my other jobs, consulting work that I was doing, and I went full time into Bitcoin. Um, and I've been full time since. And I didn't want to stop being full time and have to pick up uh, other clients or other work outside the space. I could have easily done that. but I didn't want to. So, um, you know, at some point I was uh, broke. Uh, I was very in debt and I needed ways to generate income, support my family, my dependents and all of that. And so I uh, took a, a part time position with with Blockchain Info as their chief security officer. And I think that lasted eight months. And then I was able to find better ways to monetize my work. And gradually the space matured and I was able to to get back to being self-employed. I've actually been self-employed my entire career. I like I it. Think, but for two years over a period of just over 30 years. Well, if, if anyone's ever learned about, participated, used or benefited from Bitcoin or Ethereum or really any crypto in any way, you had a hand in it. So on behalf of everyone, I want to say thank you. And I have oh, a special thank you, thank you to you. Um, I don't know if you remember this. Actually, I've never told you this before. Um, when I got arrested, there were a lot of people who threw me under the bus and and didn't have my back. Um, you went on the Joe Rogan show that has millions of listeners and defended me. And it was very emotional for me um, when you did that. So I just wanted to say thank you for doing that. Oh, you're you're very welcome. Um, I, I honestly, I don't even remember uh that things occurring. like that i i remember yeah. things like that <laughs> okay. i'll never forget for the rest of my life thank you seriously i'll never forget that andreas Antonopoulos, thank you so much for coming on the show such a great episode and i look forward to to talking to you and seeing you again soon absolutely thank you charlie hey everyone thanks for listening new episodes of untold stories are released every tuesday and thursday at 7 a.m est on untoldstories.com apple spotify or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of Blockworks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offer. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire 
from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Shrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers, and information is power. Thank you.